Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, Mutual Aid in the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age is popularly remembered as a ruthlessly capitalistic dog-eat-dog world in which individuals rose and fell entirely on their own and without any real assistance from governments or civil associations other than perhaps charities. A libertarian hell or heaven, depending on your perspective. But is that perception accurate? Did Americans really do nothing to help each other out through mutual aid or local, even if not federal, governments? Was this the world of Ayn Rand, or as Professor Samuel Goldman said, a world of Tocqueville on steroids? Here with me to discuss these questions and more is David Beto, Professor Emeritus of the University of Alabama and author of From Mutual Aid to the Welfare State, Fraternal Societies and Social Services from 1890 to 1967. David, welcome. Thank you. Okay, so let me start with uh, my first question, which I've asked uh, most guests uh, on this uh, when discussing this topic. Let us imagine uh, that an erstwhile uh, Alexis de Tocqueville comes to visit the United States, uh, say in 1865, around the 1880, 1880s, 1890s, and around 1920, seeking to find out if uh, the world of civic associations that the previous uh, Alexis de Tocqueville had so praised were still thriving uh, and flourishing, or perhaps they were declining and being pushed out by other associations. What would they find? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Through the 19th century, uh, these organizations, these mutual aid organizations, become even more extensive and start covering even more services. So um, by the end of the 19th century, for example, you're frequently getting mutual aid organizations cutting, um, covering things like uh, uh, medical care, um, uh, and in some cases having orphanages, homes for the elderly, um, uh, tuberculosis sanitariums, that kind of thing. So if anything, the, this trend of voluntarism that Tocqueville describes becomes even more extensive. And I think a lot of that is because the United States is becoming a much more urbanized society. So you have these informal systems of self-help and mutual aid in the countryside that uh, become more formalized in some sense when you get a more urbanized society, um, including a lot of small towns. So um, if anything, these networks become more extensive. Okay. So let's assume uh, I'm, I, I, am, uh, I am a young American uh, on the farm or living in a city and I need to get in touch with or hear about one of these associations to be able to, uh, to deal with some problem or uh, 
put money away uh, for future uh, for possible uh, future issues. Uh, where would I find out about it, and uh, how would I sign up? Well, uh, these organizations are, are widely known. If you're in business, for example, um, you would you would find that it's to your advantage to belong to as many of these organizations as possible. So you'd hear about them from other people. Um, these organizations would be widely known simply because you would see their headquarters, you'd see their symbols, uh, you would you would have family members that belong to them. Um, a conservative estimate is that about a third of the adult male population belonged to these organizations by the turn of the 20th century. So you'd know about them. And of course, a lot of these groups were based on things like what immigrant group you belong to. So if you're from Italy, there's a very good chance you might join a group like Sons of Italy. Um, or if you're from Poland, Polish National Alliance. The Japanese had them. The Chinese had them. And Often, if you're coming to the country, these groups are, are crucial in helping you connect with housing, connect with potential employers, and that kind of thing. So it's just sort of a word of mouth. These groups are very, just very popular, very prestigious. There's a kind of pecking order among them as well. Let's talk a bit about that pecking order because... Uh Despite the fact that America w was becoming more democratic uh, as uh, as time went on, uh, there nevertheless was a sense that there was a kind of so informal, sometimes formal social hierarchy uh, within organizations. Like what what was considered the most prestigious and what was considered more middling or lowly in that time. For me, the most uh, prestigious would be an organization such as the Masons. Um, that is considered really kind of an elite uh, fraternal organization. Although, again, the Masons had a real mix of people in it. And there were working class people, there were professionals, there were people in business. But that would be considered the most prestigious fraternal organization of them all. And a lot of the other groups sort of take their, um, uh, use as their model, the Masons, um, including in things like rituals and that kind of thing. More middling organizations would be groups such as the Odd Fellows and the Elks. These are much more working class organizations. Um, and then you've got groups, immigrant-based organizations, as I've mentioned. But very often people would belong to more than one organization. So that was there was no real problem with that. So you might have somebody that is a member of the local Odd Fellows, a Mason, and then is maybe uh, you know from a, you know a Jewish organization of some sort, a Landsmannschaften, and there were there were just hundreds of these organizations, often based on what part of Europe that you came from, if you were Jewish. Um, so you would have multiple memberships. All right. Um... So in addition to the pecking order, I noticed when I was reading your book that you did mention, and I was against one of the things I learned about this, because again, the image of this of this period is one in which the government, or at least the federal government, has an extremely hands-off approach and like doesn't provide any support at all, and yet or next to no support. And yet you mentioned that uh, at least in some states there was a an, an approach or a tradition or a legal uh, policy that 
uh, local governments or perhaps even state governments pro provided, I guess, a, a backstop to these organizations. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, uh, uh, you know, this has sort of entered the realm of uh, kind of legend. I think it's even part of the mon monopoly game, right? You have you have the poorhouse, and uh, and increasingly by the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, you have you have governmental involvement. You always had a degree of government involvement to really help people that were, um, I guess you could say, the poorest of the poor. They were very much down and out. They didn't have any other kind of help. And you, you increasingly had a system called indoor relief, where in order to get relief from the government, you had to go to a, a government-owned institution, which was a poor house or a poor farm. Possibly they would raise agricultural crops. They would, might even give a work test for people that wanted to be in them. But that's been written about a fair amount. But these these institutions were usually at the county level, and you're talking about remarkably few numbers. Um, I've seen statistics by the government, reliable statistics that I don't think anybody challenges, that you're talking about well under a fraction of 1% of the population is in one of these institutions um, in any sort of indoor government institution of any kind. And you had other institutions such as orphanages, um, uh, sanitariums, uh, that kind of thing that were maintained often by local governments, sometimes by state governments. But if you add up all the numbers in these institutions, it's a very small percentage of the population. But it's sort of, I don't know if it's a paradox or whatever you'd call it, but it is, you know, if you were looking at what the poverty rate if there was a poverty rate, right? People have estimated what it would have been, you know, in the late 19th century, you're talking about 40% uh, poverty rates. So you have a lot of poor people, but you really don't have many of them uh, in these government institutions. But I get you right to say these were regarded as kind of backstops um, if all else failed. So the interesting question is, what were people doing to to uh, take care of their social welfare needs? Um, private charities, again, not that many people. The numbers are very small, traditional hierarchical private charities. So you really have to look to this network that's, that's hard to study sometimes of mutual aid that is out there that uh, is based on a principle, as I said, of reciprocity meaning you could be, you know, you'd get aid one week, somebody else would get aid the next. There wasn't the same kind of stigma attached to it because it was seen as kind of a benefit of membership. So they're more reciprocal. If you look at modern welfare programs, if you look at modern charities, um, they're hierarchical, meaning the people that are giving the relief and receiving the relief tend to come from very different economic groups, right? There is not that sense of, uh, you know, gee whiz, I could get aid from this someday. You know, I need help, right? Um, and it becomes a little bit more distant in that sense. Speaking of uh, hierarchical and support, um, it's been a while, so I don't remember what role, if any, uh, this was a time when at least a small number and perhaps greater than we know, of Americans, uh, both immigrant and native, uh, became incredibly and sometimes even fantastically wealthy. Um, what role, if any, did 
such people play, or if not the people at the top, then maybe the people, the the people at the managerial upper middle class level play, in providing uh, financial or perhaps uh, administrative support or help for these uh, inst- these mutual aid associations to run. Yeah, I I think you're going to get a um, uh, um, you're going to get. You're, you're going to get, in, in, in these organizations, the people that are exercising leadership tend to be better off economically. That's going to be true in any sort of organization, political or civil rights or whatever. Uh, people that are more middle class, well off, are going to often exercise leadership roles in the organization. Now, what is interesting about these groups, however, is they are self-consciously multi-class organizations. So you do actually have cases where some guy would enter the organization. He would be, let's say, the son of the factory owner or the factory owner, wealthy. And the person up there um, who's his uh, superior, who is actually, you know, the one in charge of whether, you know, he's, he's, he's going to be a member of this organization, is a, fa- is a factory worker, you know, is a worker, a laborer on the factory floor. So you do see that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think certainly uh, you, you would often get contributions. Um, I'm looking at a um, black-owned hospital owned by a fraternal organization. And most of their resources are provided by members, by voluntary labor. But they will, you know, well-off member of that organization or somebody that's sympathetic to it will, you know, give donations to build an extra wing on the hospital, that kind of thing. So you certainly see that going on, you know, definitely. Um, but these are these are multi-class organizations, which is which is some phenomenon. Perhaps part of the reason why labor historians have not written about them much, right? Far more workers belong to fraternal societies than to unions, but we have far more research on the history of unions. And uh, maybe uh, maybe that has something to do with it. They are multi-class organizations. They're not interested in um, you know political issues, at least in a direct sense. They try to avoid political divisions because they want to have Democratic Republic and Republican members. Now there are exceptions to that, but that's you know they, they're sort of in the background more. But as far as what the working class, what they belong to, uh, where they socialize, fraternal organizations are, are, are much more important. That's what the Flintstones have right, you know, the loyal order of water buffaloes, right? Uh, or the old uh, TV show, The Honeymooners. You know, these working class guys, you know, they go to their lodge meetings. And women, too, because there are female fraternal organizations. That's one aspect of this that is very much understudied. Um. It's great. It's interesting that you mention uh, labor historian, labor historians, and 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 I wanted to actually uh, press the point a bit. Um, this was also in the same era that you saw this incredible amount of mutual aid, like you said, very ecumenical, very multi-class, uh, as much as possible during the time. Uh, uh, a great amount of diversity within uh, the American population. Um, there was also the rise, uh, as we know, of the progressive movement uh, of people who 
thought that not just was America changing, but that America sh needed to be actively changed, uh, uh, changed and directed from above, almost engineered from above. So what what did uh, people in the progressive movement think of these uh, more organic, uh, less interested in uh, bossing people around uh, compared to their own hierarchical approach to American life? Yeah, very good question. And I think their attitude towards these organizations was ambiguous, uh, sometimes very suspicious. Um, and I, you know, I came across some interesting observations. One one person uh, was named Jane, you know, Jane Adams, who's very well known um, um, for her settlement house movement, which which was in in big cities. You would have these middle class women move women move into neighborhoods and establish these settlement houses. But anyway, Jane Adams is very much connected to progressivism as a political movement because part of what she was trying to do was urge people in the neighborhood to kind of organize in some sense. Well, she has a commentary on the Italian mutual aid organizations in these very poor neighborhoods where their settlement houses were located. And it's very beautiful uh, description. She said, you know, they, they would come out and these Sons of Italy type groups, they'd come out and they'd march around and uh, they, they would have all this pomp and circumstance and the whole community came alive. Um, wouldn't it be great, she says, at the end of that statement, if we could redirect this enthusiasm towards a program of government social insurance, government, you know, state insurance. So it's sort of like, you know, a little bit of ambiguity there, but also saying, why can't we harness this for progressive reform? And of course that doesn't work out, but that's sort of what a lot of people are thinking. Another example is Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt um, was somewhat suspicious of what these groups did because he said, especially for foreigners, he says, look, it's dividing them. Uh, it's preventing assimilation because you could you could be uh, somebody coming from uh, uh, Greece, right? And you'd come to the United States and you read a Greek newspaper. You get your welfare from a Greek organization. You... Um, you know, you socialize with other members of, of uh, you know, other fellow Greeks who are belong to this Greek organization. And you do all these things and then you have no connection, uh, his argument was, with, with, your, with your, your new country. Now, of course, Roosevelt is wrong about this, I think, because these groups, they're very enthusiastic, very super patriotic in a certain sense. They tend to be very much the American flag and patriotism and that kind of thing. And I think they play a real role in assimilation. But I think they're also trying to hold on to that um, hyphenated culture. And a lot of progressives are suspicious of that because they tend to see the progressive ideal as sort of one big happy family, that that's what the United States will be, not a bunch of multiple multiple happy families because you will not have solidarity you want national solidarity you want a national community and how can you have that with all these little communities and so i think it's they're, they're somewhat suspicious of this kind of thing okay um so now that we've 
I guess summed up this or this uh, the question of the the um, mutual aid associations in this period. Uh, your book kind of ends off with the that much of the energy, although obviously they never entirely went away, that much of the energy and the resources and the dedication to this sort of mutual aid uh, approach was kind of crowded out as a result of the depression and other uh, thing uh, and other things. Uh, by government initiatives, uh, by federal programs, and uh, perhaps also uh, by various uh, economic uh, uh, and uh, big companies offering better services. And nowadays, uh, especially nowadays, uh, people really kind of wonder, well, okay, the old associations seem to have died out or people no longer join them. How do you, I mean, I'm not suggesting anything magical, but if you were to propose to the younger generation today, how how exactly would you do you think it's possible to revive, obviously in a an updated version that old uh, that old solidarity, or uh, has that time passed us by? Well, the the answer to that is is you can never tell. I would say what 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 you want to first of all you want to say. At the height of mutual aid, there was a menu of things, all right? Um, for example, we had a private uh, retirement system maintained by uh, insurance companies called Tontine Insurance. Very little has been written about, and it was pretty much destroyed uh, by government laws during the Progressive Era. It was a, it was a system of uh, having part of your premium on a life insurance policy go into a retirement fund, and you would... Uh, thousands of other people would do it too, and you would have this fund. And the survivors, after 20 years, people that kept paying in, would collect uh, their portion. And it was very profitable, and it could have served as a kind of early individual retirement account. So you have all sorts of different things that people use. Um, now, what is the thing that comes together on this? I would say it's, it's necessity. When African Americans came out of slavery, um, they had to look after themselves, and so there's a, there. When the immigrants came, they had to look after themselves because no one else would. Now there was a government, but there was a, a tremendous stigma attached to government aid and to private charity, hierarchical charity, that people avoided this. So you had this necessity, and people will innovate if there is a necessity. And incentives as well, because I think what has often happened with things like urban renewal um, and, uh, you know, eminent domain and uh, um, really kind of an unequal treatment of the poor, the property rights of the poor versus the property rights of the rich through these grand redevelopment projects, which have upended, you know, neighborhoods that were often very vital places, is that you destroyed kind of an incentive system of, of various types. Um, but I, 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 I wouldn't be able to predict what would arise. Um, but I think if you have incentive, people will, will, uh, will, will innovate. They're, they're, people are resourceful. 
And I think you do see these kinds of things among a lot of modern immigrant groups, recent immigrant groups, you know, um, who uh, have these cooperative institutions that are often quite invisible to us that have mutual aid aspects. So I think if, if there's necessity, people will find a way. People are resourceful. I don't think people are any less resourceful than they were in 1880, um, if given incentives. Okay, well, here's hoping. Uh, Professor Beto, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure.